let's get into our work today. I want you to open up your Bibles to John chapter 17. Um, encourage you to bring your Bibles at, at our church. Please do that with us. We put the scripture up on the screen, uh, but that primarily is there. So in case you forget your Bibles kind of thing. Uh, so we're going to be um, in chapter 17 today. And I'm I'm, I'm hopefully, um, man, God's been doing some great things in you through this greater series that we'll be doing. I mean, he's done these things in me, so I, I hope he's been doing that with you. But basically, where we've been navigating through a church has been literally investigating this last week of Jesus' life before the crucifixion. He has uh, narrowed the focus of his ministry down to 11 people uh, that will soon, he will send out, that will actually impact the entire world world. Uh, he's been telling them some important, incredible truths about the kingdom of God, um, and he's been telling them greater things. That's what we've kind of landed. We, we learned some things, uh, some biblical truths, that belief is greater than unbelief. Uh, our pro- our Jesus' promises are greater than our problems. We learned that, uh, that serving is greater than being served. Uh, Joe, last week, uh, if you weren't here, uh, told us that the Holy Spirit inside of us is greater than Jesus beside us. We have learned some deep uh, truths in the kingdom of God. Uh, but now, Jesus' sermon is over. It's his final farewell discourse, and it's over. The hour has come. But before... Jesus enters this hallway that's headed to the cross where he will drink the cup of his father's wrath poured out on sin. Before he does that, he pauses and does one of the most incredible things in all of scriptures. He pauses to pray to the father. The entirety of chapter 17 is what's known as the high priestly prayer. Jesus praying to the Father. And it is commonly broken down into three kind of sections, and it's what we'll look at today. The first, verses 1 through 5, is Jesus' prayer for himself, all right? 6 through 19 um, is Jesus' prayer for his disciples, and then verses 20 through 26 is Jesus' prayer for all the future believers, for those in Christ you and me. He's praying for you. His intercessory prayer for you is happening right here. Now, what we're going to do today is we're going to spend a bulk of our time um, looking at Jesus' prayer towards his disciples and his future believers. But before we navigate through that, and we'll do a little bit of work up top, uh, the bottom line that we're really going to sink in here to today is this idea of greater, that being in the world is greater than being of the world. As Jesus is sending out his own, um, those who the Father had given him into the world, that they would be in the world but not be of the world. All right, so we've got some work to do, but let's pray. Actually, I'm going to read first. Let me read first. Uh, We're going to read John 17, verses 1 through 21, and then we're going to uh, pray. The high priestly prayer, John 17. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him all authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you've sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence 
with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you've given me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now that they know everything that you've given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you've sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but that those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I am coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they may also be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Let me pray. Father, we empty ourselves as we come to you. Um, we empty ourselves of, of thoughts, of, Father, worries, of doubts. Father, we empty ourselves of confidences. Um, Father, we just empty the entirety of who we are so that we can be clean and receiving the word that you have for us today. God, I pray as we see and unpack and dissect this text here, we would know that who you are. We would see your character, your nature, your attributes, your sovereignty. And Father, we would then ask ourselves, what do you want us to know out of this passage today? What truth would you want to communicate to us as a people, as a church? And then, God, I pray that we would diligently seek what you would want us to do with this truth today. That your word would become active and visible in our hearts and lead to our, uh, our hands. That we would leave here a people changed by your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so what we're going to do, as I said, I'm going to get into this bottom line idea here shortly about it's greater to be in the world than of the world. But before we do that... Um, I want to spend some time on some deep, rich theological truths that have great implications um, in verses 1 through 5. We are told out of the gate here in this prayer uh, from Jesus to the Father that the hour has come. John has repeatedly told us in his gospel over and over again that the hour has not come yet. We know that right out of the gate after Jesus turned water into wine, uh, John tells us the hour had not come yet. 
Then we hear that again repeatedly in verse, or chapter 6 and chapter 8. The hour's not come. The hour's not come. And in chapter 12, the hour's coming. The hour's coming. And now finally, the hour has come. This is not just the hour that Jesus has been waiting for. This is not just the hour that Jesus was created for. This is the hour that the whole world has been waiting for. Since the promise of God in Genesis 3.16 in the garden, where he would come to send a rescuer who would pay the penalty of our sins and would reconcile us back to God. This is the hour that you and I have been waiting for that we need. And if this hour does not come, we are all doomed. So in this posture of prayer, Jesus prays this. Father, glorify me. Basically saying, give me glory, God. Now, if you know your Old Testament, this idea about God giving his glory to another, he is in fact very jealous, a righteous fury towards anyone or anything else that rivals his glory. He will not give it to another. He's very possessive of his own glory. Look at Isaiah 48, 11. For my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. God is a jealous God when it comes to taking his glory. The deepest heart is his possession of his own glory. So now how does Jesus have the audacity to stand up in the flesh and say, Give me glory that is only reserved for God? Because Jesus is God. He is deity. That's what's happening here. He is the second person of the Trinitarian Godhead, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. We are monotheists. We serve one God and three distinct persons, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. We are not polytheists. We don't serve multiple gods. We're not modalists, meaning we serve this God who can like pop up and and appear in different modes all the time, but he's never all three at the same time. That's a modalist. We're not modalists. We're monotheists, God, the mystery of the Trinity. And if you ever thought or you do think, what is God like? He's like Jesus because Jesus is God. So in this, we're seeing the the deity of Jesus Christ here in this very moment while he is fleshed in his humanity. And he prays, glorify me. How will Jesus be glorified through the cross? I mean, it's a wicked, scandalous death. How does Jesus get glory out of that? Because on the cross, he's going to pay the price, the penalty for sinners of all who would believe. And all who would believe would one day worship Jesus and exalt him. That's how he's going to get glory. He's also going to get glory because he's getting ready. He's praying to the Father, return me back to the place that I existed before the foundation of the world. Right next to you, Jesus, or God, right, the right hand of the Father. Take me back there. That's how he's going to get glory. And while he's doing that, Jesus says, glorify me so that you may be glorified, Father. How does, how does the Father get glorified in the cross? Well, because his redemptive plan to reconcile all sinners back to himself is actually coming to fruition, and it will be completed on the cross. That's how God gets glory. All right, so let's transition into a second piece of theological truth I want to share with you. This is in Jesus' prayer towards his others, 6 through 19. 
What we have to do here is pause and say, who is Jesus praying for? Who are the others he's praying in this moment? Who is this intercessory prayer for? Who are the recipients of this prayer? We are told in verse 2 and verse 6 and in verse 9 who this prayer is for. It is only, only reserved for those that the Father has given to him. We're told in verse 9, Jesus even says, hey, I'm not praying for the world. I'm only praying for those who the Father has given to him. This is important because you need to understand something about the cross. When Jesus died, he didn't die to purchase general savability. He didn't die on the cross to make it a possibility for you to be saved. He died on the cross for it to be a certainty that all the names of the Father gave to the Son would be saved. He didn't pray for everybody on the planet. He didn't save everybody on the planet. He prayed for those who the Father gave him. And he prayed for names. Let's talk about that for just a moment. This wasn't a futuristic, hopeful prayer. I hope all those people who are going to believe, I don't know who it's going to be, I just kind of throw it out there. I hope they all believe. No, he's praying for the names. The names. You see, before the foundation of the world, God the Father had a book. It's called the Lamb's Book of Life. And he wrote down in it the names of every single person who would believe. And then he takes those names and he gives them to the Son. These are yours. And on the cross... He's thinking about every single name that's written in the Lamb's book of life. Every one of you, if you're in Christ today, he thought of you by name when he was on the cross. That is a mind-blowing doctrine that should lead us not to prideful arrogance, but to humble appreciation for his grace. What also he does here, as he's praying for those who the Father gave, look what else he prays for in John 17, 11. I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I'm coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. So his prayer for the disciples, as he's getting ready to send them out to a hostile and a dangerous world, world is father keep them keep them notice his prayer wasn't i've done my part father i really hope they stick it out to the end here i really hope they don't fall away father i really hope they don't kind of get swooped up by the world and snatched out and all this work would be in vain i really hope it doesn't happen why is jesus praying to the father keep them Because he knew that their security was based upon the hands of the Father and not their perseverance. They were going to be saved because God the Father held tightly to them, not because they persevered, right? And as a good illustration, I was thinking through this that shows this how this becomes effective for us as believers. I went to a lot of Titans games when early on before I was a pastor 
And, um, and, and my son, I take my son, Rylan, to the games. And I mean, a lot of games when he was like, I remember times where he was like three years old, four years old, five. And if you navigate through the Titan Stadium on a sold-out Sunday uh, and you go through there, listen, it's a crazy crowd. It's a hostile crowd, right? You got people bumping up against you. You got people cussing, yelling, drank too much, banging up against you. There's crowds everywhere. You can, get, you can lose your child at Titan Stadium. As we're navigating through all of this, and I've got my son, and I've got him by his hand, and I'm walking through. Now, at any point, if the safety and security of my son is dependent upon his grip to his father, he is in grave danger. But if his safety and security is dependent upon how tightly his father, me, is clinging to his hands, he's good. And it is the same truth in our salvation. We are not saved. We are not secure in our salvation because we cling tightly to Jesus. It's because Jesus is clinging tightly to us. And he has mighty big hands. Huge. John 10, 39 says he never loses a single one. No one comes in and snatches us out of the Father's hands. That should be a comfort to the soul for anyone wrestling with their salvation. Anyone. Am I saved? Am I not? Yeah, you are. And it's not because you persevere, because God preserves those who he calls. He keeps. And that should lead us once again to not freedom to sin. That's freedom to pursue holiness. That's the proper understanding of those theological things. All right, let's transition. That gives us some bones uh, to get in to, to work on these things here, okay? So let's look at this bottom line idea of it is greater to be in the world than not of the world. He is, he is engaging them. He's sending them out, remember, into this hostile, hostile environment. Before we go to work on how do we do that, we have to understand what this word world means. There's a, there's a few different contexts in the Scripture of what that means. Christians throw that word around so let's look at what it is. John actually tells us uh, what it means to be in the world in a later uh, writing in 1 John 2. So let's read that together. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but it is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Now the word world in the Greek is cosmos. And most often used in the sense to describe, um, in a positive light, either the created world, the physical created world, which we're called to love, um, or all the people in the world, which we're also called to love. Those are good and right things. But that's not the word that John is using here to describe the world. This is a different context. He's talking about the overall operational system of a fallen world that is governed by Satan himself. He later wrote on that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Satan has rule and reign, on although on a leash and operating the things in this world. This world, fallen, 
operates by ungodly passions, desires of the flesh, values of its own. It doesn't submit to the lordship of God at all. It is a wicked, wicked world and a wicked, wicked generation. And it is in this sense that John is saying that we must not love the world. Now, in that passage right there, John gives three principles, three statements here on what it means to be operating and following the flow of this world. He tells us these things. Uh, we'll, we'll, let's see. Actually, he writes this. Here it is. He gives lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and pride. Those are the three things that he just told us here. And these three things have been the operational system of a fallen world ever since the fall of man in the garden. Look at me, or look with me here, Genesis 3, 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was be desired to make one wise... She took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. So the fruit was good for food. It was a delight to the flesh, right? It was a good sight, right? They saw the fruit, so it was the lust of the eyes. And why did they partake? Well, because it, it made them wise. That's the pride of life. This is the description of operating into a world. And when we do this, if we're following the patterns of the world, basically, it's called the arrogance of the flesh. Your compass, your internal compass is guided by what is good to you, what looks good to you, what feels good to you, what makes you feel good, what makes you feel happy, your emotions your feelings, everything, if you're governed by that, that's the navigational compass that you follow in your entire life. Hey, I'm going to wake up today, and I'm going to do whatever I want to do. That's being of the world. And believers, you can't do that. All of that leads to destruction, John says. We aren't governed by those things. We are governed by God himself. How do we protect ourselves against those things? How do we guard ourselves against being governed by the world? Being in the world, but not of the world. Let me discuss two ways that we do this in error. This has been happening since ever since this text right here. People have been falling into a couple of different ditches. The first one is isolation. Isolation would be the first thing uh, that would be a great error. And this is idea, um, let, let's just separate ourselves from the rest of the world and we'll be protected from the world, all right? There was a guy in the 5th century called Simeon the Stylite, and he wanted to escape the worldliness so bad that he literally moved in the middle of nowhere for 37 years. He sat up, perched on top of this high platform in an attempt to escape everybody in the world and the worldliness so he could not be tainted by it. Well, the problem was is that word got out about Simeon the Stylite, so thousands of people start coming in groves to come watch this crazy guy sitting up on a perch. So they're sitting there, listening to him preach, talk, ask him questions. So now his isolation plan actually failed because there's people all around him. Uh, 
Another common way to look at that today is this. There's some uh, sects of Mennonites or also uh, um, the Amish, which kind of disengage from American worldly culture. They dress different ways, and there's different things that they do in their lifestyles. They're practicing isolation, all right? And these are not ways that we want to do that. Um, and even more specifically, they are common-day isolationists in the church today. These are the people that believe that the gospel should be protected more than it should be shared. They typically don't have a lot of non-Christian friends or relationships that they have in their life. They love the idea. They dream up the idea about maybe buying 50 acres of land, uh, fashioning a barbed wire compound, living in the middle of nowhere, kind of like Hilltop on The Walking Dead. Let's just get away from everybody. Let's protect the wall. And these are people that literally, they, their desire is to be faithful to God. It's a good-rooted desire. The problem is, is they're unfaithful to his mission. We are called to be in the world and not of the world. Now, the second error we make in trying to protect ourselves is called inoculation. And inoculation is this idea that we would inject ourselves with a little bit of Jesus and that we would engage the world and we would become immune to its power and control over us. Let me just get a little bit of Jesus, not much, and let me go out in the world and I'll be safe and protected. What typically happens to that person is they get in and they start to conform like everybody else in the world. And they convince themselves, hey, what better way to reach non-Christians but by blurring the lines and distinctions between a Christian and a non-Christian? They start acting like everybody else. No one can even tell that they're Christians. They think they're being faithful, but often what they end up doing is minimizing sin and they compromise biblical truth. Now, let me give you the third one. The third one is the right one. The third one is called insulation. Being insulated while in the world, but not being of the world. And a great illustration uh, to give you to paint this picture is the water spider. All right? Um, I, I watch Planet Earth. I don't know if you guys watch that show. I love it. But here's what the, the water spider does. The water spider is a land a creature that lives almost predominantly all of its life underwater. How is it able to do that? Uh, well, here's what it does. It literally goes underwater and spins this silk-like web, as most spiders do. And as it spins this web, it attaches to rocks and plants and other objects underwater. It kind of builds this little pod there. And then what it does is it swims up to the top of the water, and it captures little air bubbles, little air pockets on the surface. And it pulls it down. And it takes it down to where the web is, and it, it puts it around. There's this bubble that starts to form. And it, before too long, it's this big bubble underwater of air. And it, it, it finds refuge in that air bubble. It's able to breathe while it's underwater. It's insulated from the underwater world. It's able to survive in an environment that it normally would drown and destroy it. And so it is true for us as Christians. We learn great things from the water spider. We are in a world, an unnatural world that should drown and destroy us. Because we're not created from this world. We're not supposed to be in this world right now. This is not our home, right? So how do we survive? 
how do we insulate? How do we spin webs and get these little air pockets that insulate us from the world and allow us to survive while we're in it? Three things, practical things in John 17 of how we can insulate this. The first one is this, being sanctified in truth. Sanctified, God's word sanctifies us. All right, and let's look at this. This is what Jesus said in John 17, 14. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. Now, over and over and over again, in Jesus' 33 years of ministry, he always upheld the Scriptures. He's always referring to the Scriptures. He's always quoting the Scriptures. He's always raising and lifting up the authority of Scriptures. He often quoted the Scriptures in moments of his own weakness, right? As he's trying to insulate himself from the world, hostile to him, he's using the Scriptures to do that in himself. And now he tells us, be sanctified in the truth. The Word of God is what's going to insulate you in a hostile, hostile world that we live in. Now, whether you are a godly person or a worldly person will depend on how you think. Your thoughts will be the first place that informs your actions. How do we make sure that our mind, our thoughts are godly and not worldly. It ain't going to happen by your willpower. It's not going to be happening by your determination. Think godly thoughts, think godly thoughts, think godly thoughts, not worldly. Drive it out. That's not the way it's going to happen. Here's how it happens. Romans 12, 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. How does your mind think godly thoughts? The Word has to wash over you, your mind, to penetrate the heart, to become visible in your hands. It will not happen in any other way, shape, or form. The Bible becomes this filter that you run all of your decisions of life by. How you think about money and marriage and sex and parenting and conflict and jobs and careers, how you think about all of those things starts to get filtered through this. That's how you're governed and being sanctified in the truth by the Word of God. So either God's Word is going to be shaping you and informing you, or the world will gladly do it for you. One of the two is going to happen. And I say that because, listen, doctrine matters we can come to as many small group gatherings as we want to, and those are good. We can have as many cookouts with our friends in church, as, and that's good too. We can serve, and we should all serve and do all these great things for the kingdom of God. But if we are not being sanctified in this, it will be for naught. This is the primary weapon, the sword of the Spirit that cuts worldliness out of our hearts and I beg I beg and plead with you that maybe this week maybe it starts tomorrow that you wake up in the morning 
And the first thing that you would look at is not your Snapchat, it's not your Instagram, it's not your Facebook, it's not your Twitter, but that you would pick up the word of God and say, insulate me. I need this today. And you would immerse yourself in a devotional, start somewhere there, and then you would also go beyond that moment, right? We know that on Sunday mornings right now, we're being sanctified in God's word today. We're hearing it together. Brad and the band are going to sing. They've already sang. They sanctified in the truth of song. Those songs are based upon scripture, the truth of God. We're going to sing the words of God. When you get in your car, you can still sanctify your mind and the truth by listening to songs that honor and glorify God. You can maybe forsake some mindless radio that really has no bearing on your soul. You can put that aside or just mindless radio music. Man, put something else in it. Put some songs of the Word of God into your mind so it can be transformed by the renewal of your mind. It's also great here that Jesus says here that God's Word is truth. He didn't say it contains truth. He's like, hey, there's some good truths in there. You should check it out. No, he said, it is truth. It is the truth to which all other things must be filtered through. I don't get to decide what's true or not. You don't get to decide what's true or not. The politicians don't get to decide what's true or not. No one gets to decide what's true or not but God himself. And the truth never changes from generation to generation, culture to culture, person to person, hour to hour. The truth never changes. It's never lost one time. God's word is truth, and we must insulate in it so it may insulate us from the world. So the first practical way, as I said, is the sword of the Spirit. Let's go to two, the second one here. How do we insulate ourselves from the world? We live on the same mission as Jesus. He had a mission. We live on the same mission, and that actually protects us. Look at John verse 18 here. As you sent me into the world... So I have sent them into the world. So Jesus didn't ask, look at what he didn't ask for. Hey, I saved him. Can you just take him out of this place? It's horrible down here. No, he said, I'm not taking, I'm not praying that you take him out of the world. I'm sending them in the world. Like you've sent me into a hostile world. I'm sending them to do the same thing. People who've been redeemed by Jesus are insulated from the world, not by being disconnected from it, but by being engaged in the mission of God, which is soul winning. That actually insulates us when we're running around, kingdom building, soul winning for Jesus. Our hands are busy doing good things. Therefore, the evil one has no time to tempt us in our idle hands, to get sucked into the world. The world loses its destructive power when we're busy Christians caught up in building the kingdom of God, saving souls. A good balance in this is Philippians 2.15. Look with me here. That you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. So make no mistake, we are in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. If you don't think we're in a crooked and twisted generation. You're not a Christian. 
You don't have eyes to see this world for the truth of truly what it is. You cannot be a Christian and think that we're not in a twisted and crooked generation. It's dangerous. It's hostile. It's not good. And some would say it is very dangerous to enter into the mission of God. It's dangerous for me because I might lose a friend if I get engaged in the mission of God. I might lose my dream job if I engage in the mission of God. It's a little dangerous. I might lose, lose influence. I might lose my starting spot. I might lose uh, on some really good relationships if I engage in the mission of God. Or worse, I might get my feelings hurt. And then there's the global danger that keeps people from engaging in the mission of God. Going across the world on a plane, a big metal thing suspending in the, in, in the air. That's dangerous. Stepping on the ground in a culture, we don't know what's like. What's it going to be like there? Could I die on the ground? They think the living on the mission of God globally is a dangerous thing, so they don't engage in the mission of God. I beg you to consider a far more dangerous thing than any of those things that I just listed to you. The mid-16th century missionary Francis Xavier wrote this. The danger of all dangers would be to lose trust and confidence in God. To distrust him would be a far more terrible thing than any physical evil which all the enemies of God put together could inflict on us. For without God's permission, neither the devils nor their human ministers could hinder us in the slightest degree. Listen, I believe John Piper said all Christians are missionaries or imposters. We're all called to be missionaries wherever the Lord has us today. And there is danger, clearly. But I beg you to consider there's a greater danger is distrusting God. You know, Christ and his subjected himself to the worldly dangers, did he not? Affliction, beating. Look at all the things he suffered, the physical dangers of the world. And what did the God the Father do to him? He highly exalted him. And so he will also do the same with you. No matter what dangers you incur while being on mission for God, God will highly exalt you. He will raise you up. Now, let me give a caveat here for just a moment because there are clearly certain situations that it may be dangerous for a Christian to enter in. All right, if you are someone maybe who is struggles with addiction in some kind of form or fashion, either be it drugs or alcohol, maybe you don't need to evangelize at a bar. You don't need to go there. If you're a man and you struggle with sexual temptations, like you're weak in this area, your eyes are bad, you're like David, you can't look at things. Listen, if that's you, you probably don't need to go to Victoria's Secret and try to share the gospel with the customers. If you do, I'll probably question your motives, all right? If you're a lonely, single female, and you've bought the lie that you need a relationship with a man to complete you, you may not need to hang around with a lot of men who don't love Jesus. There are clearly things that you don't need to do as a Christian that are dangerous. If you are a Christian teenager, right, and you, you are prone to hang around a bunch of people who don't love Jesus, and they make you a lot more like them than you make them like you. 
you may need to distance yourself as immature Christians until you're strong enough to withstand the worldliness exposure that you're around. They are clear discernments in this. But the overarching theme here is that we would be strengthening ourselves in Christ, that we would be able to engage the culture of the world and impact it rather than being impacted by it. The last one here, we'll wrap this up. The last thing we do to insulate ourselves is having unity in Jesus with others. Unity in Jesus with others. Look, John 17, 20 through 21. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me. There's us through their word. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That they may also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. So here is Jesus with the weight of the world's sin on his shoulders. He has in mind the unity of you and me. He's praying for unity for you and for me. And this is not uniformity he's praying for. He's not praying, hey, make them all look alike, talk alike, dress alike, same color. He's not saying uniformity here. He's saying unity. What's the unity rooted in? Is he saying they should all get along and they should all have the same hobbies, the same skills, the same preferences? No. These are, these are independent men. What is he t- calling them to be unified? He's calling them to be unified in the gospel. So you take a bunch of people who normally have no business being around each other and that they be unified in Christ. And this prayer that Jesus is doing here It was effective. You know how I know it was effective? Because every Sunday I stand up here and I preach to you guys. And I look out and here's who I see. I see husbands. I see wives. I see moms and I see dads. I see educated, uneducated. I see poor. I see rich. I see white. I see black. I see Asian. I see Hispanic. People went to different schools. People have different hobbies. I got UT fans, Kentucky fans, and bless their heart, Bama fans in here. (laughs) Listen, there's no way in the world that we should be doing this. There's no way in the world that God would bring people like this together who have no superficial commonalities whatsoever if we were not preaching the unifying word of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ. See, this is the bond that we have together And it's better and deeper than your hobby with your friends. It's better commonality than the people you work with. It's better than the people you maybe you work out with. You see, all of those commonalities you have, maybe it's it's the sports families you like to hang out with, those are all okay. But they all fade, right? They're all going to fade. As soon as you tear an ACL, you're not going to the gym anymore. As soon as your kid stops playing travel ball, you won't be hanging out with those people anymore. Those are all commonalities that fade. Your closest friends in your life are not out there. They're right in here. This is what insulates us from the world. Look around. Are your closest friends sitting in here right now? 
or are they out there? If they're out there, you need to confess and you need to repent. Because you are a people, we are a people that must be insulated around people, around the unity of Jesus Christ. We do this first, we get it right, we build a foundation, and then that helps us and equips us to engage the hostile environment. That's what I'm praying for. Man, I, I'm praying for movement today, and I've been meditating this passage all week, and man, I just... God's done a work in me in this passage. And I just want to, I may wrap up by saying this. Listen, some of you here today, you are, um, you're, you're too far away from the world. You don't have any non-Christian friends. You are solely focused on isolation, protecting Man, you want to protect doctrine and church and truth so much that you've hunkered down. And you think the goal of your existence on this earth is to live a safe and secure life. To do this safe routine and then dismount into heaven trying to impress God. God's not impressed by that. It might be dangerous, but it's worth it. Remember, Jesus' mission wasn't to come to praise the healthy. It was to heal the sick. And that's our mission, to live sent with the same gospel of Jesus Christ. Some of you others, you might be blurring the lines so much that it's difficult to tell you from other Christians or non-Christians. People look at you, they don't know who you are. First thing that you have to do with that is you have to find out if you're actually a believer. Because Jesus says that anyone he saves, anyone named who he's been given to by the Father, they will be conformed into the image of Jesus. How do you insulate yourself, believer, in the room? Here's how. John's told us today that we sanctify ourselves in truth, that we live on the same mission of Jesus, and we have unity in the church. Man, let me pray. We close out today. Father, God, you have done what we've asked you to do in this passage. Your word is so loud as we've read it. It's read us clearly. We've seen you. We've seen how big that you are and how mighty your hands are. And Father, how you have um, ordained the salvation of all who believe for the foundation of the world. God, we trust you in your plan. God, thank you for saving us. Thank you for keeping us. God, you've given us some incredible truths today. You've given us a mission to enter into the world, but to not be of it. And I pray that we begin to practice these things. That we be immersing ourselves in the word this week. Word through Bible reading, sermon listening, song singing. The truth would wash over our lives. Pray, Father, that we would engage your mission and that we would do it alongside of each other here in the church. Father, keep us to the end. In Jesus' name, amen.